You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. All right, everyone. Welcome to Season 2 of the Guidepost. Today... Uh, my co-host is Will, one of our associates that works with us at the Guides Association. How you doing today, Will? Tony, we're all good here. Uh, winter isn't fully in the swing of it uh, outside of D.C. here, so we got some hunting. We got a lot of fly tying involved, uh, so I'm very much looking forward to uh, tying some tarpon streamers and uh, maybe some sand eels for some stripers later this spring. As, as horrible as this sounds, I'm tying 11-inch stocked rainbow trout imitations tandem hooks in the hopes that some hook-jawed 30-inch brown trout will swallow one when I take my nephews to the White River in a couple of weeks. So uh, tis that time of year. And, and I'm pretty excited about our guest today, Will. Let's go on ahead and introduce him. I know we're lucky to have him because it's hard to get him to climb out of a tree uh this time of year because he 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 is on the hunt for venison um i think a lot of our listeners probably know this fella i've had the benefit of knowing and working with charlie in a lot of different capacities over almost a 17 20 year span so without further ado my friend much respected colleague charlie wittick how you doing today charlie doing well tony how are you did you ever get that uh did you ever get your deer have you i know you had that public land deal did, did no, you ever... my friend my friend saw five who was hunting with me that day i saw two horseback riders and three hikers who weren't supposed to be on the property and kept moving through the area i was working we always, always a public land tell. Yeah, we, we, we always used to tell them to run through the woods with white mittens in their pockets uh, during deer season. <laughs> yeah, um, that's just a, that's just a little southern joke. I do not recommend running through the woods with white mittens in your pocket this time of year. So, Charlie, we are obviously here to talk about striped bass. And, you know, when we were talking with our our social media guy, Cody, uh, who is a guru in his own right, um, Cody was like, yeah, you know, we've been talking about all this other stuff, all these other things going on with the water and we've kind of gotten away from stripers and we got to bring this back in cause the meeting's up and he's like, who's really, you know, that guy, that guy that, you know, we got to talk to that's just a wealth of knowledge. And, and I, it took me about two seconds to say, let me call Charlie because, um, you know, I don't know. I could say in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king or, you know, we've been doing this so long. There's just not as not very many people in the world. Most people give up that have the institutional knowledge that we have. So, you know, we're we're here to get people up to speed on this meeting coming up and, and give them a background, your background and uh, and kind of what what's going on with stripers and, and what we think is going to happen at this ASMFC meeting. So Charlie, to kind of get this going, uh, you know, I think I think the listeners would really like to learn about how you got into this way back when, and some of the great people that you met along the way. Yeah, well, I've I fished just about all of my life. My parents fished before I was born. When I was two years old, they took me out for the first time. I caught a fish that day, and I was part of the family expeditions ever since. 
you know, in the beginning, it was small fish, it was flounders, it was eels, it was snapper blues and that type of thing. But by the time I was six or seven, I caught my first striped bass by accident while I was flounder fishing. And not too long after that, my father and I started going out. He'd come home after work and we'd go out and troll sandworms around the rocks where we lived up in Connecticut at the time. And as I got older, I got more into striped bass fishing. By the time I was 13, I was very seriously into it. And then when I got into high school and I could drive and I could go out and take the boat out every morning and whenever I wanted to in the evening because I could get there without having to ask for a ride. I just got very seriously into casting lures for bass. I got into, did a little bit of fly fishing for bass. And as part of that, you kind of get to know the resource after a while. And I was lucky enough that the big class in 19, year class, striped bass year class in 1970 came up. And there were fish everywhere. But the thing we started, and I started noticing pretty quickly, was after the 1970 year class, we lost the small bass. Plenty of big bass around. You know, when I was 19, I decided I had to catch a 50-pound bass by the, before I turned 20. I managed to do it with less than a month to go, July 10th, 1974. You never forget when you put a 50 in a boat. But the big fish were the exception. The small ones were disappearing. And I worked in a tackle shop at the time. And while I was working in the shop, it was my summer job, Bomb Pond who is the creator of the Atom Plug, which is, you know, he's an institution in the striped bass world. He came into the shop with a box of jars and he was asking us, can you get your customers to catch male and female striped bass every five pounds? It was five pound bass, 10 pound bass, working up through the size range to 50 pound fish if we could find them because reproduction in the Chesapeake was falling apart. Year classes were getting smaller and smaller. No young fish were recruiting into the stock. He saw that there was a problem. And I was in the shop. I ended up talking to him for hours. And he convinced me of the need for striped bass conservation and got me involved kind of as one of his acolytes at a time when everybody else was saying, hey, there's no problem with the bass. I mentioned I got my first 50 back in 74. The same week I had it, I was all proud and I thought my fish would be mentioned in the magazine, in you know, local weekly magazines. But it was overshadowed by a 63 that was weighed in the same week. There were a lot of big fish, so nobody wanted to believe there was a problem with the stock. There were virtually no regulations back then. There were no commercial quotas. There was no definition of who was a commercial fisherman. It was normal for striped bass fishermen to sell their excess catch rather than release it. Uh, I was in Connecticut. We were the first game fish state on the coast where sale was illegal, but that was pretty meaningless because if you went to any fish store or seafood restaurant, there'd be people selling their bass in through the back door of the restaurant with no enforcement at all. And the size limit was 16 inches with no bag. And that was the only regulation. And by the way, at the time, that was the only fish that was regulated at all. And we started seeing the fish fall apart. I got involved. I started calling for conservation. You know, even within the store, I got the owner of the store very upset with me because I'm saying we should be releasing some of these fish. And he said, you know, catch and release, that's bad for business. Customers want to hang their fish in front of the store for a picture. And you could never see the long 
the long-term effects of the harvest or what was coming. And of course, we know the striped bass collapsed not long after. The end of the 70s, the population declined to the point where there was actually talk about lists a possible listing under the Endangered Species Act. There was a petition filed, although it never happened. And I got involved. I belonged to a boat club at the time. I became the boat club spokesman for conservation. I would go up to Hartford or wherever they were holding a hearing, and I would give the club's position. And then the fish collapsed. I always tell the story. Nobody realizes how bad it was then. My father and I, it was probably 1980, 1981, my father and I were out bass fishing, and you went out with no hope of catching one. It was unicorn hunts. But one morning, I actually managed to hook a bass. We were bucktail in a boulder field, and I brought the fish to the boat. There was only one other boat on the water, and it was a glassy, calm, very still day, and I brought the fish to the boat and released it. And just as I released it, there was... All I heard was clapping coming across the water from the other boat. It was haunting. Just this sound of kind of ghostly applause coming from the other boat. And whether he did it because I released the fish or just because I managed to catch one, I don't know. But I'll always remember that day because it signifies just how bad the bass population had gotten. And of course, I didn't want to see it get that bad again once it started to recover. And once Amendment 3 to the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission striped bass plan was adopted after Congress passed the Atlantic Striped Bass Conservation Act that gave the ASMFC the power to enforce its management plan on the coastal states. The bass recovered. And I was something I was happy to see. I was fishing. I went to the hearings again on my own. And by then I was living on Long Island. So I represented the Babylon Tuna Club that I belonged to at the time at the hearings. And also at a meeting of a local federation of recreational fishermen that represented all the clubs. And they seemed to be doing a good job, but then something funny happened. Back in 95, the bass were recovered. And all the bass fishermen were saying, good. At that time, the regulations were one fish at 36 inches. And the anglers, for the most part, wanted them to stay there. But the Federation, which received most of its funding and donations from tackle shops and tackle dealers and six-pack charter boats out in Montauk, they were pushing for two fish at 28 inches. And that's what their funders wanted. That's, that's what the fishing industry wanted as opposed to the fishermen. At that time, there were very few fly fishing boats around, very few light tackle guides. And it was also a time when populations of other fish, black sea bass, summer flounder, were very low. So the party boats, the tackle shops, saw the striped bass as the new panfish and wanted to see harvest as high as it could possibly be. And that's not what... The anglers wanted, not what the striped bass anglers wanted anyway. So there was a huge rift at this federation of fishing clubs. And the executive director is, why would we support anything but two fish at 28 inches? Why would we support one at 36 if we can kill more fish? 
And again, the party boats, the charter boats all wanted it. And they called a meeting where the anglers came and the party boats came and the tackle shops came and they tried to, it was supposedly a meeting where we were to get together and find common ground. But the way it was structured was a meeting to get everybody to support two at 28. And so spokesman for the organization spoke for the federation Spokesman for the charter boat spoke, folks, spokesman for the tackle shop spoke, and I got fed up with it. And when one of the Montauk captains got up and said, you know, these fish are economically important. People are paying us to take us out for them. Uh, we need to be able to kill fish. I had enough. I stood up. I pulled my wallet out of my pocket, and I said, these are the dollars you have. I'm waving my wallet in the air. There are dollars. We don't want little fish. We want one at 36. And if you want to do what the angling community wants, you are going to stop pushing for two at 28. Well, once I said that, the meeting blew up. Other anglers got up and said the same thing. And people walked out and there was just rage in the parking lot where a lot of striped bass anglers, very conservation oriented, wanted one at 36. And because I made the mistake of opening my mouth, I found myself having people asking me, we've got to do something, we have to do something. And I became the spokesman for the conservation community in the striped bass fishing industry at that, not industry, striped bass fishing community at that time. And from there, I got more involved at the state level. I got more involved at the regional level. I got involved for a while with a national group that held itself out as a conservation group. Uh, turned out it wasn't, and I walked away from that. But I found myself as a conservation advocate. I, I write a blog, One Angler's Voyage, that talks about fisheries conservation issues. And hey, Charlie, really, I'm just gonna I'm gonna jump in for a second, and I'm just gonna I'm gonna give your blog another plug. Um, if if some of our listeners, it's hard for me to believe that any striped bass fisherman doesn't read your blog. But, um, you know, we all write with a different flavor. You know, we all have our personality in the blogs. And John and I can be a little snarky. You know, Willie's very scientific. And I think you have your own style. Um, and And it's, you know, it's a mix of... 40 years of of fighting this fight and front probably losing friends and you know just kind of just being a stalwart you know this is my position love me hate me nobody's indifferent um so you know i think that there's a real lack of and and it's why we started the guides association there's a there's a real lack of people speaking for the resource. We kill things. It's what we do. But that doesn't mean, I think the first time that you take a life, whether it's a fish, a deer, a duck, a dove, a quail, whatever, you have a much deeper connection to nature than you did before you took that animal creature's life. And, um, 
and you know, you, you get to a point in your fishing career and I, I don't know, Charlie, I mean, I, I know I'm preaching to the choir with you, but I, I, I think, I think that you decide that, you know, that nobody else is doing anything and you better stand up and stick your neck out and be a leader in the community. And I just think that your blog and your voice do an incredibly good job of laying out the facts for people who don't have time in their lives to research the stuff like you do and, and don't have 40 years of knowledge. So, you know, again, I'll just tell the listeners and please continue, but I'll tell the listeners if you, if you want to learn about a fish that you care about, I would strongly suggest that you go to one angler's voyage and, and grab a cup of coffee and do a little bit of reading. So keep going, Charlie, you write a blog. Yes. And I, I do some other things. I, I write for the Marine Fish Conservation Network. I write for their blog. I write for other publications, although quite honestly, once you're considered to be a conservation writer, your opportunities to be published dry up pretty quickly. Oh, we've gotten kicked out of quite a few publications in our lives, haven't we, Charlie? We're blacklisted, yes. right? You get blacklisted because I had a column with the local magazine for years and they loved my work. And the editor I worked with told me that, you know, he didn't like to see me go, but I was opposing the industry position on conservation issues, on fisheries issues, and they just didn't want my voice out there. The publisher had decided that I was not what they wanted in the magazine because I didn't represent the industry. I'll tell you what, if you want to find out real quick what people are made of, stand up for something. Yeah, that's you very know, true. Take, take a position and you want to see who's got a set of balls and who's going to bow to the almighty dollar. You take a you take a hard position on something that's what's best for the resource instead of what's best for him or her or whoever. And you're going to find out real quick what the character of the people that you're dealing with are because i i mean i have flat out been told i've begged friends to allow me to write something and not even pay me i'll just allow me to write something to get the word out and i have been told that conservation doesn't pay yeah so it's more than conservation doesn't pay they actually feel in many cases it's contrary to their advertisers interests the advertisers. What, what about that event, Charlie? I'm not going to name the event, but a couple years ago, when we first started the association, John was invited to be a speaker. And when the main sponsor found out, they said they'd pull out if John was allowed to talk. And yeah, then the next year, they tried to get me into the same show, and the same thing happened. So, yeah, yeah, that that's a very common thing because. Everybody's focused on the short term. And all they think is, you know, I'm not going to make this year's numbers. I'm not going to make enough money this year if these conservation provisions go into effect. Forgetting that conservation is an investment in the future, particularly in the case of striped bass. Striped bass abundance is very closely linked to the number of times people go fishing. Now, it's a sport fishery. They're not looking for meat on the most part. 90% of recreationally caught striped bass are released. 
So people want to go out and interact with the resource. A lot of bass, people go fishing more often, they fish longer, and they spend more. But the industry, for the most part, the Guides Association being an exception, haven't made that connection between abundance and income. It's very real, but all they see is this year. They all, and it's no different. I mean, that's the way industry works. Uh, yeah, I'm a striped bass fisherman, but I was a lawyer on Wall Street for decades. And it's no different in the biggest, biggest companies in the country. All they care about is making this quarter's numbers, making this year's numbers, not disappointing investors. And the notion of managing for what happens five years in the future is not a common thing. That all they want to do, hey, you know, we have we have to take action to make sure that we hit our annual predictions, that we don't come so, in under. Charlie, you got to, you know, I saw Will's eyes get like this big when you said you wanted to catch a 50 by your, what was it, your 20th birthday? And you, you, yes. made, you, landed, a, you landed a month ahead of time. I tell Will, I tell Will stories about, you know, 5,000 gannets pounding the water and 20 to 40 pound stripers as, as far as you could see. Please tell him that actually existed because this is, I feel terrible for, for Will's generation. They've never seen this. And it's happened the the other problem with that too, and Charlie, sorry for interrupting you there, but you know this is one of the other issues with fisheries and with I think our generation. We don't know obviously what it was like when you guys were you know in that heyday, whether it was pre pre uh, you know the crash before the eighties or even early two thousands. Um, so when I go out and come across one or two blitzes a year, I'm ecstatic, you know. It's that that shifting baseline that I think Charlie, you have such like a unique mind to be able to not forget about what happened, you know, from a data perspective, from a policy perspective. Um, you know, you don't you don't forget that those sort of things, and I think that comes up in your blog. Um, but that's such a such an important part of you know thinking about these fisheries. You can't just think about what happened this year and. Um, kind of uh without understanding the whole uh larger picture will i'm sure like you know from and i'm sure charlie i know charlie isn't on social media a ton you know he is a little bit with his blog and everything but when i see people you know holding up a a a 24 inch striper and and that's something that they put on social media it's kind of it's heartbreaking for me because i i can remember you know, in the Chesapeake Bay in the late 90s, you wouldn't have to really leave the mouth of the river that you launched from. Like today, you know, there's a good slug of fish of the Potomac. There's there's a there's a decent number of big fish actually in the northern part of the bay. But both of those things, I mean, Jesus, that's 80 miles one way for me. Both of them. You know, I'm smack dab in the middle of it. And I'm like, you know, so like I can vividly remember like a five, a four or five mile run and every mouth of every river had boats, just tons of boats. And we would shake off 
you know, using barbless hooks, we would shake off 24 inch bass. So we didn't have to touch them because they were a pain in the ass. And like your friend had a 36 on and some little rat 24 incher ate your fly. And it was like a joke on the boat, you know, and now people are, people are going halfway across the state to catch that 24 to 28 inch fish. And you're just like, you're out of your flipping mind. And like, like three ah. fish, three fish during a tide too. It's not like, it's not like they're flipping them off. You know, I, I know I've had my fair share of nights when I, you know, I go in cold and wet at the end of the tide and, uh, was pretty excited to catch, you know, four, four or five fish. But, uh, you know, I think we'd all like there to be, uh, some, some more and some of those, those, those good old days that you guys always talk I'll about. I'll tell you what, you'd find me in the easy chair at the lodge with a six pack of empty Guinness. Uh, by the recliner if if that was if if my you know if the forecast was you got to freeze your nuts off all night for four 20 to 24 inch fish i i am i am going fishing for crappie or something like i mean seriously and i think that's charlie to your to what you're saying like how how linked the economy is to the abundance of stripers it's not linked to how many you can kill it's linked to your overall experience and correct. I mean, I think I'm about right here, but if I recall with the MRIP recalibration, 2006, we had about 25 million trips to the latest. We've we're down about 11, 12 million trips a year, right? I don't remember the exact figures, but you can see it. The, the interesting thing is until 2015, the regulations were largely unchanged from 1995 on. So you can't say that, oh, people aren't fishing because the regulations are more restrictive. They're not. They're fishing more because the regulations eased. You had the same two fish at 28 inches on the coast all of that time. And you can see a striped bass abundance increase. It, it topped out around 2003 when we talk about biomass. But Tony's right talking about 2006 because there were still a lot of big fish around that even though absolute abundance was down a little the abundance of big fish was up until 2006 or 2007 and you can watch trips steadily increase from 95 as biomass increased you saw trips increase and then as biomass started decreasing and you lost some of those big fish you had no six so you had neither size nor numbers. You just watched you watched effort drop off again. Yeah, and it's 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 sad. So I guess you know that that brings us to today, and and the meeting. You know, for for you and I, we probably feel a little bit like it's Groundhog Day. Because I have the same memories as you, like standing on a beach and there was this big commotion and we were all blue fishing. And I got to think, man, I was probably 15, 16 years old. So that puts it somewhere, you know, in the 80s, mid 80s. And somebody caught a 14 inch striper and it was like a white buffalo. Like every, every person that was fishing that bluefish blitz stopped and come running down the beach. And that was the first, that was the first 
saltwater striper because I grew up in the South. That was the first saltwater striper I'd ever seen. I remember the blues and the purple and the lines and just looking at it. And it was so small. I mean, it, you know, 14, 15 inches. But I mean, it was like, man, it, it was, it was like, it was like I touched heaven. You know what I mean? Like just seeing it because I'd heard, I had just heard stories from the old guys about what it was like. And, and it was, I, I honestly, much like your eerie clap, you know, I honestly felt, you know, for a little bit, like I had, I had seen something special and like, I, I was fortunate to be there that day. And because people didn't, you didn't catch them. They weren't there. Um, and to see a juvenile was a really special thing. So, and then, you know, fast forward five, six years from then and all hell broke loose. Right. I mean, that's, yes. that was, that was the golden age. Um, you know, what were you doing during that time, Charlie, like the late nineties, early two thousands, mid nineties, mid nineties, I was bass fishing. I had moved, I had moved out to the South shore of Long Island. And so usually most of my bass fishing, I do up in Connecticut where I grew up because I enjoy plugging and bucktailing the boulder fields and the sod banks up there on the sand beaches. It's not the same, but I was still, I was trolling in the ocean. How, how many, how many lower units have you seen get yeah. knocked off? And can I know we we have a we have a friend at the guides association whose boat is in the uh, is in the repair shop because he he misjudged a tide and a boulder. I shouldn't say this, but most of us who fish up there knew where the rocks were. It's we, <laughs> I mean they don't move. The South Shore it's, it's a nuisance because the sandbars keep changing positions after every storm. But rocks that were there when I was six years old are still in the same place. And we kind of figured out where they are and how to get around them. I mean, when we go into the boulder fields, we bounce off a few stones, but we're not running fast. You know, if you're drifting and you hit a rock, you'll use the rock to hold the boat in place. Or once in a while, you're going dead slow and you bump into a stone, but you don't mind it. That's part of the game. Eh, Robin's racing, man. You know, you don't you don't bump a rock or an oyster bar every once in a while. You're not fishing, right? Like like skiing, yeah. they say no falls, no balls, right? When I used to work in a tackle shop, I'd have people. I go, look, if you want to catch fish, you've got to get into the stones. Now, like we are close. I go, how many did you hit this morning? They're none. I'm like, you're not close enough because you always bounce off a rock or two. I mean, you. It's hard to go out more than two or three times in a row without touching a stone. Charlie, it's it's similar to it's similar also. Like if your uh, if your bucktail still has paint on it, you're probably not in the right spot, right? Exactly. Yeah, you should be showing a lot of lead on the head of that bucktail because you're again you're bouncing off the rocks. And but we very rarely did it. I had one person I used to fish with. He was a very good bass fisher and a worm troller. All he did was troll sandworms. And I went out with him a little bit when I was young. He was like one of the first of the old guys to recognize that I knew what I was doing, you know, take the kid out fishing with you sort of thing. And I learned quite a bit from him. But he used to hit rocks because he was just careless. But most of us, we know where the rocks are and we managed to miss them. So, Charlie, like if you, you know, um, you know, obviously 
for me and you kind of being the long tooths, gray beards, uh, which I might add my friends at 7-Eleven. That's what I'm known as. Every time I go to 7-Eleven, get gas or whatever. My wife walked in and they're like, you're Graybeard's wife? And I was like, that's great. That's, great. that's just that's that's just what I needed to lift me up today to know that like the clowns working behind. Sorry, I love you guys. But the guys working behind the counter at 7-Eleven that I've been going to for 15 years lovingly call me Graybeard. That's great. So, you know, like I, I would say obviously you know look we don't have to get too artsy fartsy about this for me and you now just being out on the water is is good enough you know it's that's just just having that time to be able to fish but you know when we were younger maybe we were a little more aggressive with our fishing and and i you know i told will middle of the summer middle of the summer chesapeake bay if we went out and didn't catch a striper over 36 inches uh 36 to 40 inches it was a shit day if you did and that that held true till about 2006 and then everything changed so like what was your measure then like you know for you what was like okay yeah that's a pretty good day we got a couple of you know got a couple of 40s like what what was it it's funny but i don't think i did measure it that way when i was young before the collapse i started getting into you know, I had a light tackle phase. We didn't really think about release mortality at the time. So I was into what I could pull on, you know, fish in four pounds, fish in six pounds. And I didn't, I wasn't looking for size. I mean, again, I took my 50. To me, that was the standard. And at that point, and knowing, having talked to Bob Pond and knowing that there was a problem coming up with the stock, I wasn't targeting the big fish so much anymore. Up in Connecticut, that was mostly a live bait fishery with a lot of gut-hooked fish, so I tried to avoid it. For some reason, we didn't get too many big bass on plugs. Once in a while, you did. But most of the fish over, say, 20 or 25 were on bait. And I didn't take part in that fishery. So, Or I'd go out with a pencil popper. And I'd have a fish with a tail that looked like a, sh- a shop broom come up and knock my plug 10 feet in the air. And I'm like, that's great. You know, that was my morning. I raised the fish. I moved it. Yeah, he didn't come back, but that's okay. So I had that. It was more how many fish I could move, how many fish I could raise, the size of the fish that I saw. It was, it was very difficult because the fish were there. That was, that was the issue. It wasn't what I caught. It's what I knew was there. You know, Charlie, we fought real hard in Maryland to open up the Susquehanna Flats, um, catch and release fishery. And, um, you know, it was a place where we could go in small boats. You know, you can't really go there in a big boat. I mean, we we would always say on the flats, like, if you see a bird standing, don't drive over there. Because it's very, it's pretty treacherous place if you don't know it. Um, You know, it can shallow up real quick. And, and, um, you know, I can remember, I can remember in the late nineties having days on the flats where every person on the boat caught multiple stripers on the fly over 45 pounds. Um, you know, I'm talking, I'm talking fat fish between 40 and 50 inches. And sometimes all three guys would be hooked up because we were fishing with good fishermen. You know, three guys could fish on a 21 foot center console, like a Parker, my Seacraft, you know, whatever. Um, I can, I can remember we'd bump into them 
like you just be be real quiet, not making a noise, drifting the flat, and you, you'd hit the you'd hit the you'd hit a big striper with your boat, you know, just bump into them in a big explosion. I can remember seeing herring, like you said, knocking that pencil popper. I can remember hearing like a slap and seeing herring just cartwheel like somersault and it would splat on the water and you just see this monster striper just ease up and like sip it like a mayfly and you're like oh my god you know and and then you know it got worse and it got worse and then no one went and and you know maryland put in those ridiculous you can't fish in april regulations and that was when we fished the flats and it it went through without even so much as a whimper because nobody fishes it anymore. There was nobody to fight because there were no fish, you know? And it's sad to me, that was just profoundly, profoundly sad. Um, my group of friends, we'd, we'd trade off every year and somebody would keep their boat up there and you just leave the keys in it and let any of your friends use it. And, and they'd have to fill it up with gas when they were done. And that was the rule. And it would just take turns and, I haven't fished the flats, I think, in five years. I say one of the things we have in New York, and it's true up in southern New England, too, is a very big surf casting community. And the surf casting community are striped bass fishermen. And they also understand conservation because they're stuck on, on land. And when the bass start getting scarce, they're the first ones to feel it. They're the first ones to be hurt because the fish might be, you know, a quarter mile off the beach, but they can't reach them. So they keep fishing because they've got the investment in the beach buggies and all and the rods and the equipment. The surf casting community is the first one to get hit because the stripers may be a quarter mile off the beach. Yeah. Yeah, we have a surf casting community and they're the first to get hit. So they're very conservation aware. And they're one of the strongest voices for good striped bass management that we have here. So while a boat fisherman might say, well, I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out and sit on a wreck for sea bass, or I'm going to go offshore and look for mahi or do something like that. We always have people fishing for striped bass here from the beach. And that creates a constituency for good management that maybe you don't have in some other places. So, Charlie, I mean, I guess that brings us up to today, right? Um, and, you know, so we're three weeks away from this meeting uh, at ASMFC. They were supposed to put the document Amendment 7 out for public comment at the last meeting. They had some final tweaks that they wanted to do, you know, ultimately kicking the can down the road did not hurt stripe bass recoverably recovery terribly at this juncture, because at the current pace, new regulations wouldn't be in place until 2023 anyway. So we got a couple of items left on the table. I think that we're in an okay place, but there's always pitfalls and landmines. So you want to run through some of that stuff. And this is, so this is one angler voyages, Charlie's opinion, who does work closely with the guides association. We may, we may vary on a couple of the nuances, but this is just your opinion as a conservation guy with decades of experience of 
what these different items could mean for Stripe Bass management. So what tell let's let's talk let's give the listeners a head up. Let's get them back up to speed for this meeting and we can kind of tell them what to be on the lookout for. Okay, I actually think we're in a pretty good place right now. We may not be in a great place, but it we are not in a bad place. That's a big change from this spring. When amendment 7 was first proposed, there was a lot of pressure from some states to reduce striped bass abundance, that is the biomass target, in order to allow a higher harvest, uh, to reduce, to change the goals and objectives of the management plan so it's less conservation-oriented. But thanks to a lot of stakeholders, a lot of anglers coming out last March, and putting comments on the record demanding that striped bass be rebuilt and that those those items be removed from the amendment, they were. And so most of the bad stuff that was in Amendment 7 is now gone. We're also in a situation where kicking the can down the road not only didn't hurt much, I think it helped. Because the reason they kicked the can down the road and did not release the amendment for public comment last October was because Megan Ware, who's a fishery management, fishery manager, I should say, from Maine, made a motion that the amendment include a rebuilding plan, which is something that wasn't there before. Before it talked about the process of striped bass management, but never said, hey, we've got an obligation to rebuild this stock within 10 years, which now is 2029 because... <laughs> They first realized it was overfished in 2019. But to put a a rebuilding requirement in the plan, and that's a big reason that they kicked it down until a January ASMFC meeting. That's a good thing. Right now, most of what's in the plan is either good, or in the amendment, is either good or at least not harmful. The one big minefield right now is in the management triggers. Management triggers determine when the striped bass management board has to take action in response to a threat to the stock. Right now, if the stock becomes overfished, that is, if it's below the biomass threshold, the management plan states that it must be rebuilt within 10 years. If it experiences overfishing, which means that too many bass are being removed, fishing mortality exceeds the fishing mortality threshold, mortality must be returned to target within one year. Those are pretty good guidelines. They're very close to the federal guidelines. Actually, the one-year requirement is more restrictive than the federal guideline, which... But... One thing the management board doesn't like to do is act to put in regulations that restrict landings. They're always looking for ways to delay. For example, they were supposed to put in a 10-year rebuilding plan in 2014. Uh, But they decided that, well, if we get fishing mortality back to target, the stock will rebuild eventually and we don't need a 10-year rebuilding plan. Well, I think think the exact term, because, Charlie, I can – I vividly remember being escorted from the Maryland uh, state hearing that was over here at Chesapeake College 
um, by uh, several state troopers because a merry band of uh, ruffians wanted to hang me from the yard arm outside the auditorium uh, after my speech. But I vividly remember Mike Wayne, who was the fisheries management plan uh, coordinator for striped bass in 2014. I think the exact term that he used was it's a green light fishery. Um, when we were all jumping up and down and screaming that striped bass were going into the toilet and they needed to act now. Uh, yeah, I think that was, I think those were the words that were used. Yeah, green light fishery was certainly a term used by the management board at the November 2011 management meeting. Yep. When they had a warning, they had a stock assessment update that said this stock will become overfished in six years. And they had thought they were going to do an amendment. They had considered doing an amendment. Or actually, I should say an addendum, which is not quite as extensive a document as an amendment, that would reduce harvest by as much as 40% to prevent the stock from being becoming overfished. They decided not to release that addendum for public comment because we're in a green light fishery. None of the management triggers have been tripped. And so we don't need to take action yet. Basically, let's wait until the crisis is upon us rather than try to avert it and then act. So for and a kid like Will, right? We're talking, we're going back to 2011 now, where we were ringing, people like me and you were ringing alarm bells 11 years ago from the highest steeple saying, this stock assessment says they're in trouble. We're seeing way less striped bass. Do something now. You know, I think about this rebuilding plan that should have been enacted in 2019 and now won't even start taking place until 2024. And I can hear those same voices saying, oh, we, we can't. In five years, that's going to be too restrictive to rebuild. We can't do that in five years. To which my blog, when I write it, will say, well, you should have friggin' done it in 2014. And we wouldn't be in this mess. But here we are. Thanks for nothing. I actually wrote something very close to that in the blog I put out last Sunday. I said, they're going to complain. They're going to say it's going to be far too draconian. I said, well, there's a price for delay and the bill has just come due. The saying, you broke it, you bought it? Yeah, that's basically the case. Ooh, ooh I, think, I think a title for a blog just came up, Will. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a catchy, that's a catchy little, little ditty there. So Charlie, you had said, um, we'll get in, we'll kind of do a little bit of a deep dive on the rebuilding in a second, but you had mentioned, you know, a, a potential minefield with the management triggers. So that's a pretty technical issue. And I can't really think of anyone better to kind of take a stab at explaining that to just, you know, a normal fisherman who cares. So do you want to, you want to kind of beef that up a little bit with your knowledge so these people have a great understanding of what's going on? Yeah, the simplest way to put it is they're trying to build more excuses for delay into the management triggers, where right now, if a stock assessment comes back and says the stock is experiencing overfishing, that you have to immediately 
work to bring mortality down to target within a year. They're talking about saying, well, let's use an average of two years or an average of three years to see if the stock's really experiencing overfishing. Because, you know, there's always some uncertainty in the estimates. And we again, we don't want to take any action. God knows we don't want to do anything to protect these fish unless we have to. So if mortality is just a little bit below the overfishing threshold, they're going to look for excuses not to do anything. So this way they can say, well, okay, it's over one year. Let's see if the numbers next year indicate it's still experiencing overfishing, or maybe we won't have to. And when you average it out, they could be delaying two or three years before taking any action in a stock that's already experiencing overfishing. And so you should also be seeing biomass declining at that point. And yet they don't want to take any action because, hey, maybe, maybe the numbers are wrong and they're overestimating fishing mortality. Oh, boy. What I find- you know, Charlie, they, they, what, I, what I find the, the largest hypocrisy and Will's learning this with black sea bass and scup and summer flounder, everything else. IMRIP's good for everything until it tells you something you don't want to hear. So Maryland's more than happy to use IMRIP numbers in a way that for for a three-week period, you know, one wave in April that we know the the percent standard error is is 60%. It should not be used for fisheries management, but they're happy to use IMRIP for that. To close the season, to to make up mystery numbers that thirty whatever thousand fish a day are being caught in April, which is just a, a, the biggest lie that's ever been told. Um, but but if Imrip says we're killing too many fish, the Imrip numbers are wrong, right? But we can use we can use them the way they're not meant to be used to figure out how to you know Mark Twain lies damn lies and statistics we can monkey with the numbers to kill more fish but if it tells us not to kill more fish well uh, those numbers are wrong right and that's it's, and that's it's basically ridiculous. what you yeah it's basically what you're seeing here nobody says hey you know we're almost at the threshold that denotes an overfish stock but if we consider the error in the estimates we might be overfishing the stock already They don't worry about that. They don't worry about maybe the numbers are lower than reality and that they should be taking action now to create a problem. They only worry about the numbers overstating fishing mortality and causing them to act when they don't technically have to, but probably should anyway, rather than, hey, maybe we should already be acting and we're not. That doesn't concern them at all. You know, and if there's anything that's true in fisheries and will, you know, if you have anything to add on this with your countless hours that you've spent listening to, you know, the what's going on with black sea bass, summer flounder and scup. But if there's anything that I've learned over the eons that I've been doing, this is an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. If you if you just put if you if you have a pretty stringent risk policy and you are risk averse your fishery has a damn good chance a damn good chance of coming back for one reason nature's resilient they want to live just give them a little chance to breathe and then everybody be happy i mean will 
I will say if you have a risk policy, uh, you should be forced to follow it. That's uh, probably a whole nother can of worms. But uh, but yes, Tony, you are you are spot on with that. And and that's ASMFC's biggest fault is that they are very risk tolerant. They never try to act preemptively to act before a problem develops. It's always as we go back to the green light fishery story. Let's wait until we have a crisis and then ad- address the crisis rather than let's avert the crisis in the first place. There's always this hope that maybe if we don't do anything, things will correct themselves. And history shows that is not going to happen. You know, um, Charlie, I, and I'm, I'm, I don't want to, we're, this is a great conversation. I don't want to go off on a tangent, but we're, and we're going to get right back into this meeting in a couple of weeks. But we would be, and this this has a lot to do with this risk discussion, and we're all on the same page with it. We have a stock assessment that's coming out in October that was delayed a year because of COVID. Now, I'm not faulting anyone for that. I mean, we've all been in uncharted territory. None of us even knew what Zoom was two years ago, and now it's like an integral part of our existence. You know, a lot of stuff has changed. I can understand why a stock assessment would be delayed. But when you're, (laughs) Charlie, I mean, I know there's been decent striper fishing in some places. I know that, you know, off the coast of Mass, they they had pretty decent striper fishing there for a little bit. And, And there were some areas of the Chesapeake Bay where there was okay striper fishing. You know, you talk to the guys in Jersey, especially the surf fishermen, and they had like they had like a couple of weeks and that was it. The boat guys had it a little bit better, but they're they're all everyone is saying the same thing. And it's very basic. It's not it's not a shadow of what it was. Fish are more concentrated. There's more pressure on them. You know, you have a declining you have a declining resource. And if in 2017 we because that's the last data that we have in the stock assessment that we have. If in 2017, we were 25% below the threshold, I got to tell you, I'm a little scared at, at, at what this stock assessment is going to say. Understanding that, yes, the cohorts from the 2011 year class, which was the fourth best on record, recruited to the spawning stock biomass between the last stock assessment and this one that's coming out. Okay, I know that happened. But they didn't recruit in the numbers that made them look like the fourth best on record. Okay. That and that was that was relevant to the last stock assessment. They they did not show up in that little like blue dot, you know, thing model that they have. They were not recruiting to the ocean in numbers that that we had hoped. So what does your gut tell you about this stock assessment that's coming up in October? In some ways, I think the delay is good because what we, what it will now incorporate is three years of very very below average recruitment in the Maryland Young of the Year Index, that we are looking at recruitment numbers that are as bad as they were during the collapse years. Numbers in the two and a half to three and a half bass per sample range when the average is 11.4. And if again, if you go back, you can't find a series of consecutive low recruitment numbers like that 
until you go to the 1980s. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I think managers are going to look at that. The stock assessors are going to look at that and say, we may have to consider a low recruitment regime when we work on the rebuilding plan. And that's going to be one of the big topics of debate. But they see the low recruitment this year. The numbers should be coming out ahead of the October ASMFC meeting when the rebuilding plan is going to start being discussed. So if 2022 numbers are in the same class, it will be impossible to deny there's a problem. My one concern is that so many anglers have been turned off by the lack of fish and that effort is so so much lower that they're going to say, hey, look, if we assume constant effort at this relatively low rate, we are not going to have to do too much beyond the current regulations to rebuild the bass. That's my concern. But of course, we know if they manage to start increasing abundance, that effort's going to start to spike. So I think we have two, two kind of competing forces. We have poor recruitment on one hand, and we have lowering effort on the other hand. And how those two forces play into the final measures that are going to be needed in the rebuilding plan, we still have to see. So, you know, Charlie, my fear, and maybe you can help me out because I know your, your recall is better than mine, generally speaking. Um, it is constantly said that there is no stock recruitment relationship. And for the listeners, that means that there doesn't need to be a target level biomass of striped bass for there to be a good spawn. It's more relevant to the conditions uh, for the spawning success. However, so there doesn't need to be X amount of fish in the water for there to be a good spawn. Unless the SSB falls to a certain level and then it starts to impact the spawn. And I, th- I, I think it's around 50% of the threshold where we start to see that. And I got to tell you, man, you know, I'm not a betting man. Uh, that's between me and God and a blackjack dealer at Foxwoods Casino. And me praying in front of an ATM machine to give me a couple of good hands so I can make my rent money back. That was also in the late 80s. Um, and I've never entered a casino again. So uh, I'm not a betting man. But what do you think? If that, if that stock assessment came out and we had fallen another 25% and we're sitting around 50% below the threshold SSB, where where are we then? Because I think that I think it starts impacting the fish's ability to spawn. And if you look at the last three years of spawn, every one of those years we had different environmental conditions. And I, I, I will tell you right now, I got eleven inches of snow in my backyard. It's gonna snow tonight. For some reason, I am super lucky, and we are in this. I think our our little. Uh, Our little weatherman calls it atmospheric memory, which basically means we're in the land of shit if you hate snow, and I do. Um, We're supposed to get another six inches of snow tonight, and then it's supposed to snow again on Sunday. 
like today's Friday, you know, this is going to come out. I'm um, today's Thursday, rather. This is going to come out a little bit later for us. You know, at, uh, Cody's going to have to edit this, but I mean, we're going to. There's going to be a snowpack, and there's going to be clean, cold water flowing down those rivers from the north, and this is setting up to where we should have a very good spawn. You know, you get a snowpack in PA. And that that first wave of big fish comes into the Chesapeake Bay early March. It's perfect for them. That melt, and and it should be perfect conditions. So, like you said, our 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 young of the year survey will come out right around the same time that the stock assessment comes out for that October meeting next year. And I'm betting it's the perfect storm. I'm betting we have another bad year. I'm betting the SSB is shockingly low. And and where are we then? We've just gone through a year and a half of this Amendment 7 carnival. And it's probably we're going to have to hit the reset button and do all this over again. Well, to some extent, the good news is that in 2017, the biomass was between three and four times what it was during the depths of the collapse. So even if we cut that in half, and I'm not predicting that that's actually where we'll end up being. But if we cut that in half, we are still we will still have more fish than we had in 1983. So that's that's a positive. One of the things I'm concerned with, though, is that we're losing a lot of the older females, just because there hasn't been a good year class until 2011. And as you noted, 2011 didn't recruit into the stock or into the fishery in the numbers that were predicted as a result of its original size in the, Ma- in the Maryland Young of the Year numbers. Even a year later, the 2015 year class produced more one-year-old fish than the 2011 year class did. So when you go, when you back up from that, you don't have a big year class until 2003. Those fish are going to be almost 20 years old. There's not many of them. They only make up a few percent of the biomass. So we are really depending on the remnants of the 2011 and whatever 2015s are out there to to produce the next generation of bass. The 2015s are now in the coastal slot limit. And if you're going to keep a bass, you're going to beat up on the 2015 year class. So that that's a problem. Uh I don't know what we're, what we're going to see in the assessment. I'm, I'm a little afraid to predict it. Uh, I don't recall what the actual number is when spawning stock starts to affect recruitment, spawning stock size. I know that a very small spawning stock can, under perfect conditions, produce a big year class. But I'm not sure when perfect conditions are going to occur. I mean, you have snow now, but we have no way of knowing if beginning in two or three weeks, it's going to be 60 degrees every day and you're going to use that, you're going to lose that snowpack before the fish come back. Oh, no, man. I've seen this before. We are in like, let me tell you, it's like the Arctic tundra. Uh, It's the last, I remember, I think it was, I think it was 2010, 2011. That year, because my son, or it was 2009, 2010, because my son was just like six months old, and we had back-to-back-to-back snowstorms 
and it was like 18 inches, 25 inches and like 26 inch snowstorms. And they were above my mailbox and Kent Narrows froze. So like you're talking about eight knots of current, nine knots of current, salt water freezing. And I, I've only seen that like twice in the 20 something years that I've lived here. I actually saw idiots walking across it. And I'm like, hey, look, they're, they're going to crabber's going to find you in April. You know, like that's like you know, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life, like walking in a, in a frozen, essentially river. Um, but this is this winter. It's been colder than the past five, six winters, even before christmas and like when we we don't if where i live if we get one snowfall that's like 10 11 inches we get more than one and it's kind of like and we get these horrific winters once every 10 years or so and this is shaping up to be one um but you know charlie i mean look it, it hasn't it hasn't been like uh you know a greenhouse here in the last three years, we have had ideal conditions. And, you know, USGS, US Geological Services, keeps wonderful records on river flows, temperatures, you know, dissolved oxygen in the water, everything. And I can go back and I can look at 2011. And I can tell you what the conditions were on whatever river, you know, the Potomac, the the Susquehanna, the 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 bush, the Bohemia, the elk, you know, all of those rivers, I can tell you exactly what the conditions were. And then I can bring them up also for the last three years and I can match those graphs up and they're not that far off. So like, you know, these, these people who are like climate change, like horse shit. No, I'm sorry. Like we, we keep records. You, you are not allowed to just say that as an excuse for everything. And if we have, if I can look at 2011 and 2015 and that matches up since 2015, climate change has not changed the world. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not canoeing to, to the grocery store yet, right? Like it has not changed the world that much where it's going to limit striped bass production. We have killed too many of them and they're not producing as much, you know, they've lived for eons. Like it's, it's so the same people who say that climate change is affecting striped bass recruitment are the same people that would deny climate change in 99.9% of any other issues that it was brought up in and it's very disingenuous so you know i would just say that like numbers are numbers and they're cold and brutal and and i can pull up river flows going back to probably the 1960s for u.s geological services and i you know i'll i'll, I'll lay them out and match them up and and i'll throw your i'll throw that theory right out the window you know, the truth is the truth, no matter how much it hurts. So that's kind of where I'm at with all of this. And, um, you know, I, I, I kind of feel like, I guess the reason why I brought up the stock assessment and young of the year coming out and all those things, I, I almost feel like since the onset amendment seven has been theater, it's been political theater. Uh, to delay 
meaningful management action in the hopes of throwing in five or six different things that could like lowering the biological, the, I'm sorry, the, the reference points, um, like you mentioned before, just anything that can keep this unsustainable harvest, you know, keep that fishing mortality high in light of a declining stock. And I felt that since the very beginning, you know, rather than rebuild this stock in 2019, which they were obligated to do, they decided to go down this course of Amendment 7. And much to the chagrin of the Mike Luisis in the world, we, you know, rose up. I mean, the angling community rose up and said, this is what we want. And a lot of those little traps, those little bear traps that he planted in there, we threw them out the window. And I think I think that you could hear the frustration in his voice back at the May meeting when all of those things were getting removed. I mean, he was he was distraught. And I hope he lost some sleep over it for what he's done to the striped bass fishery. Well, I, I think when you look at it, Amendment 7 was just what you described. That was the concept of the people who were pushing the hardest for it. It was a way to increase landings, reduce target biomass. But that's not what happened because we're lucky. While there's some mid-Atlantic managers who seem to elevate short-term harvest above the health of the stock, New England is pretty solidly in favor of good conservative striped bass management. New York has been in the right place. Pennsylvania has been in the right place. D.C. has been in the right place. North Carolina has more or less been in the right place. You remember when I called you and told you that we broke the Bay block, voting block, yes. and that D.C. was going to vote our way? And you're like, no way, not a chance. And I said, watch, it's going to happen. But but that has happened. And so Amendment 7 has turned, largely thanks to New England, from a document that was going to hurt the best to a document that might actually help the best. And I think that's that's kind of remarkable. But it's what it's doing, as I, I think you were suggesting before, is it's creating this long Amendment 7 process that is delaying the time when they should be creating a rebuilding plan. I mean, they should not have even started Amendment 7 until they had a rebuilding plan in place, and that's not what happened. And now... We're looking at a situation that the rebuilding plan is going to suggest a very short rebuilding period. It may not be possible to rebuild in five years. It may not be possible to rebuild in five years if you shut the fishery down. We don't know. You know, we have to wait until the technical committee puts the numbers together. If they assume a low recruitment regime rather than average recruitment, it's going to make it even more difficult to rebuild. Yet, from what we're seeing, a low recruitment regime probably reflects the real world. So, now, Amendment 7, we still have to get right. We have to get the traps out of it. We have to not give the management board more excuses for delay. Ideally, we're going to put some real sideboards around the use of conservation equivalency that lets the states adopt regulations that in theory have the same effect as coastwide rules, but in reality, 
always allows them to shift the conservation burden off their shoulders onto neighboring states. Hopefully, we're going to get that in place in Amendment 7. Hopefully, we're not going to see anglers separated from the resource, either by seasons or something else on an ocean that recreational release mortality is somehow a bigger problem than retention mortality, which is another issue we have to worry about in Amendment 7. It's interesting that the public information document that started off the entire Amendment 7 process creates includes a statement that says very clearly it doesn't the source of mortality doesn't matter to the health of the bass stock as long as it doesn't ex, the mortality overall does not exceed the threshold they've admitted that and yet we still have a document where they're singling out recreational release mortality as some special problem you know charlie i've brought this up in the past but you know for for just like I think that, uh, you know, much like the readers of your blog, I think I think the readers of your blog are a lot of professional fishery scientists and leaders in various communities because of the level at which you write. And I think this blog, you know, we built it thanks to Costa. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Costa Del Mar for 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 helping us you know get all this together um we built this podcast to kind of address the fishermen who care but don't understand what's true and what's not true and and just kind of a little bit more plain speak so here's one of those like aha moment plain speak things and i've written about this a lot if you want to address an issue We'll just call it issue X. And you're genuine about wanting to address this issue. Well, if you found out that currently a state was doing the best science ever on issue X, and they'll be done in a year or two, and the how we've been handling issue X is from a document that on the bottom of it, the document, the Diodati study, it says this study should not be used for management purposes in big, bold letters. And that's, that's where we've been using this 9% mortality number. And I'm not, I'm not being negative to the Diodati study. It's the best science that we had there were flaws in it. There is new technology now that's being implemented by mass DMF. They are doing a, an incredibly comprehensive study. Willie is friends with a lot of those people. They're doing a very comprehensive study. They are very good scientists and they're going to tell us how we impact striped bass when we catch and release them. And, and like it or not, the guides association lives and dies by science and we will accept that science and we will adjust our fishing according to what it tells us. The fact that they are pushing ahead with it before the science comes out is a monstrous red flag for me. It tells me that they are full of shit. 
that they are disingenuous, that they do not care about the resource, that they are looking for creative ways to use those numbers to continue to shift, you know, to put the blame on recreational fishermen, continue to shift that blame and shift numbers in favor of retention versus and and penalize catch and release anglers and you know it's just it's it's bull it's it is it is bull on the highest order where you're addressing an issue where we're going to have groundbreaking science in the next year or two where we can make we can do it the right way but you want to you want to carve out your pound of flesh now because you have special interest groups in your state that say, if you don't let me kill a fish, I'll go out of business, which is not true, which is, which is not true. I mean, look, uh, I don't know. I don't see a lot of horse buggy manufacturers out there these days. Um, I, I don't, I, I, you know, I, I think the oil lamp manufacturers have gone out of business. So, you know, I look at a lot of our guys in our uh, I look at a lot of our guys in in our association and how much they have changed their business models over the last four or five years as a result of the decline of striped bass. And I don't know why everyone else doesn't follow suit. You know, um, I'm, I'm looking at guys who were hardcore striped bass fishermen who are now. Um, who who are now tuna fishermen and had to buy new boats and had to buy new gear and do everything and outfit completely differently because of the lack of striped bass. And then there's just other people who refuse to change. Uh, I, I've been doing this the same way for 20 years and I'm going to keep doing it the same way. God damn it. To hell with the fish. That's not right. It's not right. Yet the, the fishing industry is probably the most backward-looking industry that I can think of. It's always how things used to be. You set allocations based on base years from 30 or 40 years ago as if the fish are never going to move and fish abundance isn't going to change. You, you always argue for the way things used to be, and it's a good way to die, quite honestly. If you want your business to die, Keep looking at what you did 30 years ago and don't change. Because I can tell you, if the bass population continues to decline, people who build their business around killing fish are going to go out of business. We saw that happen in the collapse years, you know, out in Montauk. There were boats that were known for bringing striped bass back to the dock. Very few of them survived to 1990. And you're going to see the same thing. But it's the nature of the fishing industry. If you look at other fisheries, we just went through an allocation amendment in the mid-Atlantic for summer flounder, black sea bass, and scup. And they ended up adjusting the numbers to coincide with what the new marine recreational information program estimates were of catch back then. But they refused to change base years that go back as far as 1980 because, hey, that's what that's what we did in 1980, and we should never change from that. And that's that's just the way that's the way the fishing industry thinks, and unfortunately, it's the way fishery managers think to large in large part. 
know, once you establish an allocation, it's set in stone. I, I, I rarely, I, I know this is kind of, kind of a shock to everyone, but I rarely think about these things before we do it because, um, I want it, I want it to be conversational and I don't want it to ever sound scripted. Um, you know, and I was kind of thinking long and hard this time because I wanted to take advantage, you know, Charlie, because, you know, we don't we don't have you on here very often. But, you know, a lot of people hate us. And I've come to find out that a lot of people like us, too. Um, I've, I've kind of gone through the last five or six years pretty much figuring that nobody likes me in in this in this world. And and that's okay because I know I'm doing the right thing and I don't really gauge my worth on other people's opinion. But, you know, people do, there are, there is a certain set of the community that does look at us as leaders as hard as that is for me to say and as hard as that is for me to accept. And, I, and they look at you the same way too. And I look at this whole situation and, you know, we nurture fishing. And I know I do it because I want to guarantee the kids, you know, and that, that could be someone Will's age, someone, someone younger, you know, mid twenties down, down to like, you know, little kids, like, you know, seven, eight, like the same stories you were telling about your dad, that they have the opportunity, but not not to experience exactly what we had, but the same bond, you know, to eat a brook trout on a campfire and on a mountain stream, to, to, to light a bonfire on a beach and, and, you know, have like a, have a nice, a bluefish fillet, you know, and, and hear the stories from the old guys and, and that rite of passage, that community. And, and I look around at the, the people who do actually think positively of us and they're, they're diehard fishermen. I mean, they're diehard fishermen. And I kind of look at it and like, we, we ignite that fire, that conservation fire. And as we saw with amendment seven, they fan it. They don't let it go out. We cannot do everything. You know, we need those people that are going to fan that fire and make it grow. We can just throw a match on it. And when I look at amendment seven and, you know, we say, we say so many things, there's so many pitfalls, so much stuff that we have to worry about. Stripe ass stock is in trouble, but I also feel like the future is ours to shape. We're better at communicating and 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 technology and all of these things and we're taking advantage of it and that's going to allow us to you know we're taking this on our shoulders and and I just hope that the people listening when they gear up for this fight I beg you uh, approach this with the same passion that you approach a a seasonal fishing trip that you look forward to with your friends. I, a, a, approach the rest of this process with that same passion, because we're not going to get another chance at this. Okay. We got this thing coming up. We got the stock assessment in October and everybody's going to be 
sick of striped bass. They're going to have exhaustion from striped bass. We have to get this right. So to fan those flames and, and, and approach this with passion and conviction. And then, you know, that's how we shape the future. That's how we win. That's how we ensure that after me and you are gone, Maybe there's some kid that'll read a book with our name in it and around a campfire and it'll be one of our friends, grandkids, and they'll tell us a story. They'll tell them a story because our legacies are worth shit. If there's no fishery, there is no legacy. I don't care. I really care about my legacy, but there is no legacy for conservation for the history for the bob ponds for the guys who invented adam popper for the for the gibbs striper fly it's all fucking gone it's gone it's out the window if there's no fish so take this seriously and and rewind this podcast and listen to what charlie has to say because he knows what he's talking about and these are key issues that you have to educate yourself on and spend as much time on this as you would planning and prepping for that fishing trip that you look forward to every year with your network of friends or your children or who, who whatever it is. Because w without the fish, nobody's even going to remember. So, you know, I mean, that's kind of where I'm at with this. This is do or die time. This is where the rubber meets the road. And somehow with the history of striped bass, we've brought them back before and we can bring them back again. They're resilient fish. And Tony, um, let me also let me also add something too that I think it's something that I've realized. You know, I've I've been in following striped bass management for probably three, four years now. Um, so you guys also jump in if you, you don't think I'm giving the right sentiment here. But I think a new generation of people, of fishermen, have gotten engaged in the last two or three years too. Which maybe it's because of COVID, and they were you know had some extra time on their computers. Maybe it's because they've seen how bad the fishing has gotten. And during that time period, there have been numerous examples at ASMFC of managers and the board ignoring the vast majority of where fishermen want management to go. Um, that type of ignoring the public can't continue for too, too long, you know? So this is a make or break opportunity for striped bass, but also for management. I'd, uh, I'd posture. Yeah. I mean, Charlie, I think, I think you could certainly add something to that with the public's enormous distrust of the commission, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries well. Commission. I mean, the problem is that the ASMFC has no legal standards that they have to adhere to. They can do anything they choose. They can allow overfishing to continue. They can refuse to rebuild an overfish stock. They can ignore the best available science, and there is absolutely no recourse. Back in 2010, a federal appellate court decided that you can't even bring a legal action to question an ASMFC decision because they're not really a federal agency. So it's really up to the public to put enough pressure on them. One of the things that Will said that I thought was interesting when he said there was a new generation of people coming up, younger folks speaking out for the fish, that has horrified one of the management board members. 
one of the reps from New Jersey who's been around for years complained that at last March's hearings on the public information document for Amendment 7, all of the people seem to be young using computers. When we have in-person hearings, we got more older folks in there. Well, guess what, folks? It's the young folks that are going to benefit from this. It's going to be their world and their fishery and not too much longer. And it's maybe time for the people that are waiting for the old folks to come out and stick up for the old paradigms to step aside. If folks did what they did last March, turn out in the same numbers, with the same sentiments, with the same passion, the bass could turn out to be in pretty good shape. And it's it's a hundred percent on us. What you know, you get you it's kind of like when I would prep for a show, you know, I've run fly fishing shows forever. I've uh, I used to I used to run tournaments, events, everything. You know, if you do the prep work and you do everything that you know you can do, the day of the event, you're not really nervous because you know you did everything. You left it all on the field. And that's the feeling that I want to have when I log into that meeting on the 26th that we've educated the anglers and, and we've gotten them to a place where when, if those decisions are made on the 26th and that document comes out that we've primed them, they're ready to fan those flames. We throw that match on the fire and we do something meaningful and, and, and we do have a legacy of, restoring this iconic species and not for us not so i can catch another 50 before i die i I don't care i've caught one i've got a couple you know not so i can see five thousand gannets again but so i can be an old man on a porch and you know watch a bunch of middle schoolers and high school kids running down a beach to chase a chase a blitz and knowing that in some little way that each one of us played a part in it and it's it's that bond, right? It's that fisherman's bond um, that drives all of us, and and that connection to something that's far greater than yourself. So, you know, man, uh, to everyone who's listening, put your rally hat on. It's coming. You know, we all got to step up to the plate. We all have to do all that we can do. And that's different for every person. But don't leave anything, don't leave anything on, on the field. Give it, give it everything you have. And if that's 20 minutes to write a meaningful email, that's freaking awesome. Do that. It'll make a difference. It made a difference in the PID. And you know what? If they screw up striped bass, you know. Well, then the next, it isn't over, I guess. I said it was over before, but the next thing is, you know, we reform the commission because they are way too loosey-goosey with their rules, way too flexible, and it's gotten us into a world of trouble with striped bass, weak fish, winter flounder, American eel, American shad, horseshoe crabs. I mean... Do I even need to mention sturgeon? These are all the things that they manage. And it's frightening. 
and and at what cost you know people aren't entering our industry there are very few young boys and girls out there that say i want to be a fishing guide it's almost impossible to make money doing it unless you live in Florida or South Carolina or, you know, Louisiana, someplace where you have a 11 month season. It's damn, damn near impossible to do it here. And is that the future that we want to give the kids? This is way more than just striped bass. And, um, and like I said, put your rally caps on, get ready, gear up for the fight, pay attention to one angler's voyage. Pay attention to our blog. You decide what you think is best for you. You don't have to agree 100% with everything that we say, but if you love these fish, fight for them. You know, don't, don't sit on the sidelines. Don't think that you can't make a difference because, because you will. So I think that's a, that's a great time, great place to thank Charlie for being here. Uh, I, I think everyone learned a lot. Um, you know, I, I, I have nothing but respect for Charlie and everything that he knows and, and his ability to navigate these very complicated issues. And I'm really grateful that he chewed up a lot of time in his afternoon talking to us instead of freezing his ass off in a tree in New York. So Thank you, everyone, for listening. Charlie, you got any parting thoughts? No, I don't, Tony. Just want to encourage everybody, get out and comment. It will probably be a webinar-style hearing again, so you can do it from the comfort of your home, probably. If they have live hearings and you can't come out, then put in written comments. They're just as important. But if you care about the striped bass fishery, Watch this issue and be sure to comment on Amendment 7. 